Welcome to the Bill Bradley Collective on a beautiful Sunday afternoon on International Workers Day, May 1st. So, uh, happy May Day. Yeah, happy May Day to all our fellow workers, which is pretty much everyone except the people we'll be talking about in the main uh, topic, the billionaires. Before we start our normal introduction, many people believe the Jets had one of the five best drafts of the year and therefore the best draft in their history by a lot. So, uh, Andrew, what are your thoughts as a Jet fan about the upcoming season? It signified the last three three days, namely Thursday night, the importance of having adults in the room that know what the fuck they're doing. Joe Douglas, and listen, we're not going to know for sure anything really until we get into the season, until we see these guys on the field. But if you look at what they did in terms of objective team needs, in terms of guys that seemed unanimously where were among the best players in this draft, the three firsts, Sauce Gardner, uh, Garrett Wilson. Jeremiah Johnson. Jeremiah, uh, is it Jeremiah? I think it's Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jer- uh, Jermaine, Jermaine, Jermaine Johnson, Johnson. Excuse me. These are all like on a lot of boards, top t- consensus, top 10, top 15 players. Jets got three of them, and they all fit three serious areas of need. It was focused. It was smart. It was unjets like and that is that hopefully is you know the new era the joe douglas robert sala era they, they also yeah. picked up the best running back on the board in the second round when when the draft started you know laura kind of asked me how i felt about it and i explained to her that you know joe douglas built joe douglas built that eagles team into a super bowl uh winner that the eagles were very bad and then he became their gm and through the draft largely uh he he made them a super bowl team and that Going into it, that was my expectation. That was my bar, is I wanted to see a draft that four or five years from now were in the playoffs, were a serious contender. The era of just being abysmal is over. The era of being a laughingstock is over. And I think he hit every single metric uh, to the T. I was very excited uh, about the Sauce Gardner pick uh he is a andrew said it best we were texting that night uh this is a draft pick in the vein of Darrell revis you know he and andrew pointed that out to me last night when we were talking about it uh which you know a little peek behind the curtain andrew and i talk a lot about the jets (laughs) (laughs) i've already annoyed brandon by predicting eight wins next season uh it's every year (laughs) i bet you the over under seven and a half or eight eight wins is reasonable yeah i think the over under will be seven and a half there's gonna be a lot of talent on the one two but I'm, but I'm very excited. Um, I'm very excited for for this organization. It it was the best draft I've seen, probably in my tenure as a Jets fan. I mean, Jesus, I can't remember the last time we got two potential Rookie of the Year candidates in the first round. I had actually stopped watching the draft. I thank a friend of the pod, Shannon uh, Richardson, for texting me to let me know the Jets had made a trade. Yeah, and I was like, oh shit, I got to turn it back. Like it was like eleven o'clock at night. I was exhausted. Turn it back on, and I'm like. Jermaine Johnson's they, still out there? Like They, they wanted to take him four. There, there was these, talk he'd go four. They were talking he'd go four. When he didn't go four, there was talk he'd go ten, and they got him at 26. Um, I think I think we're I think we're about to experience the new look Jets. So the only thing I would say that would tamper my – and I, I am – I think the Jets have a chance to be pretty good this year. But all of it comes down to not this year's draft, but the guy he got number two last year. Zach Wilson, and the guy he got number two in Philadelphia was Carson Wentz, 
which worked once, and that was it. If I get one Super Bowl win, <laughs> if I get one, I haven't even I well, we've, yeah, exper- yeah. we've experienced an AFC Championship loss. <laughs> well, two of them, two of them. That and was to, our break. To be fair, I mean, Wentz didn't even start those playoff games and like oh, Super Bowl run. Yeah, yeah. so hey, that's it's what, fair. It's it, a lot hedges on Zach Wilson. What Douglas did this weekend was he kind of it, it, he's surrounding Wilson with just superlative skill position talent, which I think is a it could be it is just so huge. All right. So, Andrew, as we're going to talk about in the rants, I'm guessing, uh, Shakur Stevenson fought yesterday, and uh, he unified the junior lightweight title, and he said he looked forward to unifying the lightweight title because he's a big light heavy. I mean, junior well, mm. uh, uh, super featherweight. I, I like when they call them junior lightweights better. I just yeah. think it just makes more sense because uh, they're not going down. They're going up. Mm-hmm. Who was the last undisputed lightweight title holder? And is he dead or alive? I will give you a hint. It is in the three belt era, not the four belt okay. era. Oh, you kicked off the IBF? No, WBO. WBO. So it's WBO, WBA, WBC? No, IBF, WBA. WBO, WBO. was the, la- the, late, the latest uh, right. insertion. <laughs> this isn't right, but the first. This is wrong. Shane Mosley. It's wrong. No, it is wrong. Yeah. Pernell Whitaker, dead or alive? He's alive. No, he's dead. That's right. He got hit by a... <laughs> hey! That's right. He got... Sorry, is, that, is, that, is this our first fruit basket of the season? <laughs> oh, man. Maybe. Yeah. He, he just you thought, couldn't hit yeah. him with a punch, but you could hit him with a Buick. He got run over crossing the street. <laughs> that was right. that was a dark joke, but I enjoyed all, every minute of it. Right. Uh, I was wondering why we had a surplus this year. So now, now we know why our budget has a surplus. Andrew owes... Uh, Andrew, Andrew owes a lovely Miss Whitaker. Miss Whitaker. Uh, the undis- former undisputed lightweight title holder. God damn it. Uh, Max Max Kellerman's favorite fighter, only my least favorite. It's like him and Willie Pep. Yes. Guys. Yeah, Tyrone Crowley. Guys that guys that get, were guaranteed to throw four punches around and hit hit you twice and win two nothing in the uh, punch that. And uh, today I'm going to be talking about the decision made by the All England Club, the which oversees the Wimbledon Championships, one of tennis's premier events, uh, outright banning any individual from Russia or Belarus for their upcoming event. Well, I will also be talking about sports, which is unusual for me in my rant, to talk about the women's fight yesterday that may have changed the sports landscape for quite a while. Zach, what will you be ranting about? Uh, I'll be ranting about Connecticut's uh, landmark legislation that just passed and the pathway for all pro-choice governors to govern uh, moving into the future as we continue to see an assault on women's rights uh, by Republican governors. So... As I said, this is a Sunday. Yesterday was a big boxing day. So, Zach, I'm doing a boxing question for you. Mo Sislak fought as a professional boxer under four names. Fuck, I knew it. Give me two of them. Kid Mo, Kid Ugly. No. He started as Kid Gorgeous. He ended with Kid Ugly. No, not yet. He becomes Kid Presentable. (laughs) Yes. Then becomes Kid Gruesome and then becomes Kid Mo. He wasn't Kid Ugly, he was Kid Gruesome. Kid Gruesome. And he blames his boxing career for making him ugly. Although there's another episode, Why Is He Ugly, in the other episode. Uh, Because a building (laughs) falls on him. Yes, a building falls on him and hits his face. And according to O, his his boxing career ended because of sports politics and because he was knocked out in 40 consecutive fights. (laughs) (laughs) So... You had on a much much more somber note, Zach. You had something you'd like to lead, uh, end this part with? Yeah, um, you know, one of 
the things that I think makes this podcast great and why I enjoy doing it with you guys is that it's a way for us to kind of process uh, what is going on in our lives and to kind of process the way we feel about the world. And, uh, you know, on Friday, uh, I apologize if I get a little emotional on Friday because I'm still processing this. Um, on Friday, uh, the labor movement in Connecticut, the Council 4 family that I work for, uh, lost a great man, um, Steve Curran, who was a former correction officer. When he was a correction officer, he uh, started a program that would have inmates train dogs, uh, which benefited inmates, made their lives a lot better. Uh, he always talked about how proud he was of the fact that in his 20 years of service as a correction officer, uh, he never had to lay a hand on an inmate, that he was always able to de-escalate it because he was a very kind man. And he had a huge heart, and he always supported our veterans. Uh, we would have our veterans picnic um, every year, Council 4, that he was a big supporter of. And he was at a union meeting and suffered a uh, massive stroke, uh, went into a coma, came out of the coma. They took his feeding tube out, and then he suffered a uh, massive coronary attack, and uh, his family took him off life support on Friday. Uh, he died with his boots on. Um, he died doing what he loved, which is fighting for working people. Uh, he is and was uh, the kindest man I have ever met in labor. Uh, we are typically a very gruff group, and if you've met correction officers, they're an even gruffer group. Uh, but he just had a huge heart and was always had a good word to say. Uh, and he would always pop into my office, no matter how busy I was, to try to talk to me about legalization of marijuana. Because uh, that was his big issue. And it is the Connecticut labor movement lost a true fighter uh, and somebody who really cared about the work they do and cared about the people we represent and just had a heart as big as anybody I've ever met. And uh, rest in power, Brother Steve. Uh, we'll miss you. Yeah, he was um, an incredibly good guy. And. Um Everything, and, you know, everything you think you know about corrections officers, when you actually get to meet some of these guys, um, Steve was not that person. He was a good, kind, kind man. Only called me Zach's dad, never called me anything up but Zach's. Hey, Zach's dad, how you doing? And we just joke around a lot. And um, and unfortunately, correction officers die very young. It's, it's an incredibly hard work, um, and, and I just echo what you want to say, Zach, and thank you for saying it. And we'll be back with Bill Bradley Collecto. Flying over the intersection of sports and politics, we are the Bill Bradley Collective. Now here are your hosts, Andrew, Zach, and Ed. All right. To kick us off this week, we have a we have a positive rant about women's health. Uh, so often this series, we've heard horrifying uh, stories about what's going on in other states with restricting women's health access, restricting abortion coverage, just state by state, you know, episode by episode. It's been horrible. Each story worse than the last. But we do have a reason to be joyful, at least here in the great state of Connecticut. 
Uh, we do not get everything right all the time, but what we do get right, we get really right. And last week, uh, the Senate gave final passage, it had already passed the House, to an abortion rights bill, which would expand abortion providers to include like midwives uh, and, uh, and really ease the wait time that women who are trying to access abortion care have right now. It will really ease that. But probably most importantly is it made Connecticut essentially a safe haven state where if you come to Connecticut from Texas to get an abortion, Texas cannot sue you. They cannot sue the state. They cannot sue the provider. Uh, they cannot sue the clinician. It protects uh, the women who have to make this difficult choice and who have to travel across the country, essentially, uh, to do so, and it gives them protection. It was an emotional debate, um, as this issue is very emotional. Uh, not every Democrat voted for it. Um, not every Republican voted against it um, in both chambers. And... It really is a difference that we see between Democratic governance and Republican governance in this country where one side uh, is doing everything they can to restrict access to women and codify that into state law, and the other is doing everything they can to support women and support abortion care and support their right to do that. And uh, Connecticut has done that, and I think we've planted a flag of what other Democratic states uh, should do. We are the first uh, state in the nation to pass a law like this. Uh, I think it is an example for our New England friends, you know, all around us. Uh, I think it's an example to a place like California, uh, which has no excuse to not do this. There's the most Democratic state in the country. Uh, but overall, just if you care about women's health access and if you care about abortion care, really a proud moment to not only be from Connecticut, but to live in Connecticut. Uh, yeah, Connecticut catches a lot of shit from people, I think mostly from people outside of it. What was that? Barcelona, that stupid, uh, we're going to determine the worst state in the country by, then we're going to bracket it. And Connecticut was like a high seed or whatever. And I feel like that reputation, and you think of, I don't know, kind of like the ghoulish, ultra-rich of, of Fairfield County and whatever, high cost of living down the line. No, I, I for this for this state, for my state, for our state, to plant this flag, um, really encouraging. It's something to be proud of as a resident of the state, proud of the people that got it done, too. Yeah, man, good pizza, progressive legislation, let's go. It's uh, It really was, in what has been a um, surprisingly good legislative session, uh, we also have the second in the nation captive audience bill, which makes captive audience uh, meetings for people trying to unionize illegal. Um, just... Zach, some, some just kind of nuts and bolts. How can we pass a law in Connecticut that prevents who ten, Texas can sue? And uh, can, they, can they, would they also be able to take legal action? I mean, how about the bounties and things like that? Does that affect the, per, the women there regardless? I mean, if they know they left Texas? My, my understanding of the bill is that nobody can face civil or criminal charges. Uh, for accessing care in Connecticut, like they can't sue the providers, they can't uh, sue the clinicians. But for their, I mean, this this is a bill that will be going to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is going to shoot down uh, Roe v. Wade in June, uh, most likely. Um, and it is, I would not be surprised if uh, the governor signs this bill and there is a lawsuit challenging it the next day. 
I mean, of course, the argument with Roe v. Wade is it's a state's right issue. But shockingly, with especially Republicans who call on state rights, they don't actually care about state rights. They never do. They want to do what they want to do, and they don't want any other state to interfere with it. Uh, Missouri has already passed a law, I believe, or at least they, they have a, a bill, making it illegal to leave the state for abortion. And now they want to also say for gender-affirming medical care. And uh, so it, it'll be interesting to see, but it, it was clearly, you know, I mean, Oklahoma just passed the same law Texas has. And so, and, and the vast majority of Texans who receive abortions get them in Oklahoma. So that has now been shut off. Uh, New Mexico, of course, will still be a provider, but it, it was, even at a symbolic level, it was a very important step for uh affirming women's rights in this country. And uh, that has not happened this year. It's given the playbook uh, for pro-choice states and how to govern. Yes, and and, and it's a a terrific, terrific law. I was really happy to see it. And again, as you said, a bipartisan vote. And uh, Connecticut might be the last state that still has bipartisan votes. Um, We've had several this time. I mean, a lot of times it's one from each party, but still. It counts. Bipartisan bipartisan. So speaking of um, great, although at a lesser level, uh, great steps forward for women. Uh, obviously, I've been talking about women's women's rights and, and the attack on women throughout this country. But yesterday, uh, a lot, this is it's Sunday today, as you know, and, and yesterday, uh, Madison Square Garden sold Nearly 20,000 tickets. I think it was 19,790 tickets. It's a sellout for a woman's fight between Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano. Serrano. I had just my boomer moment. I just blanked on the name. Um, That's Bill Bradley collected without Ed messing up. Yeah, so no, I, I at least knew to, to look to Eric, uh, to look to... Um, oh, and then he screwed up Andrew's name. <laughs> Andrew's name in, 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 in uh, I, don't, I don't matter. It's cool. <laughs> no, no. So um, anyway, the crowd was absolutely electric the it was uh the fight which went off at nearly even odds uh serrano was a slight favorite i think she was plus 102 when taylor was minus 90 uh 96 or something when it started it was it was as close to a pickem as you could get and it was in addition to being an incredibly important event T- two of the the you know, there was her fight, their fight. There was a, uh, I forgot what the, oh, there was a middleweight fight. And then before that, there was another women's fight that was an absolute war. Um, I have never been in favor of the two-minute rounds, but I'll tell you what the two-minute rounds do. Every every second has action because it's like a normal round with all these staring at each other seconds taken out. Um, the fight ended with the two of them just wailing on each other, covered in blood. And then, because it's women's sports, and because they were both clearly aware from the time they walked in until the last second that this fight was way bigger than this fight, that this fight was announcing women's boxing as a major sport, a major piece of boxing. Uh, it, it is, it's going to be to boxing what the WNBA is to the NBA, uh, obviously, Boxing and the NBA are not at the same level, but it may even be bigger than that because no one WNBA game is going to outperform 
an NBA game. Um, Shakur Stevenson said that his fight with Vasquez yesterday was the biggest fight of the year. It wasn't the biggest fight of the night. It was an absolute war. I recommend everybody see it. And the other thing that I was stunned by is Jake Paul, who works with Sir, uh, Amanda Serrano, did the play-by-play. Uh, uh, didn't do the, she, he did color on the previous women's boxing and was not that annoying. He was actually good. He had insightful things to say. He didn't talk about himself. It was like 15 minutes in before I realized, oh, that's Jake Paul talking, and I, and I don't want to kill anyone. So good for him, too. It's disappointing. It, it was a little disappointing. Yeah. I don't want to see him fight, but, but if, he, if he announced another fight, I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn it off just because of that. Oh, but I think it's it's great news. I mean, for women's boxing, women's boxing is always kind of withered away on the vine of in the boxing world. Um, it's rare when you see a women's fight on a card. Um, it's even rarer when a women's fight headlines a card. I don't. Um, I can't. I, think I can't think of another yeah. time it has. Serrano's Ceron- um, yeah, fought forty-two times, which is an incredible number of women's fights. She's fought all over the country and all over the world. Just finding people to fight and fighting them. There's a lot of good fights at that weight, at, near that weight at 130. Um, somebody was talking shit on the fact. Well, the, what hurt women's boxing before was the two best women's fighters, Christy Martin and Layla Ali, refused to get in the ring together. Christy Martin fought at 140, and Layla Ali fought at 195. No, they weren't getting in the ring together. That wasn't going to happen. Uh, well, they could get in the ring together, but only one of them was walking out, and it would not have been uh, Christy Martin. We've come a really long way from the 90s where the only place you'd ever see women's boxing was in like the opener of like a De La Hoya or a heavyweight pay-per-view. It'd be Maya St. John. Remember her? She was a yeah. model turned boxer. You'd get Layla Ali in there for four rounds with somebody that was just way overmatched. Same thing with Christy Martin. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the Stevenson fight. I mean, all week it seemed like there was this jockeying between both um, DAZN and Eddie Hearn and ESPN and Bob Arum in terms of like which fight was going to have the bigger piece of the spotlight Saturday night. Um, the thing is, the Steve- credit to ESPN, because the Stevenson fight was promoted really well, but it turns out it was a one-sided affair. It was a showcase for Stevenson. The Taylor Serrano fight was a showcase, a watershed moment for women women in boxing. You know, Ronda Rousey, you know, whatever you think about UFC, th- there, there are some, between both Taylor and Serrano and their performance, and what this, you know, this could be what takes... Because it took, you know, Rousey debuts, what, 10 years ago in UFC, and now, you know, women's mixed martial arts is, is a big thing. Tonight will be the night, 10 years from now, when women are regularly headlining, hopefully, regularly headlining big ticket shows. This was the moment. This is where it started, was Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano. Yeah. And, and the other fortunate thing was, because one fight was, the, the uh, Stevenson fight was in Vegas, that the uh, um, Taylor-Serrano fight was over, and you could still catch, and they did a, that intentionally. Well, yeah. A lot of the prelims, so you were able to watch. Yeah, I was able to watch both fights, which was great. As I said, the Stevenson fight was basically an exhibition. That Vasquez could Vasquez could fight him a hundred rounds and never hit him to the head. He could hit him to the body. Couldn't hit him to the head. Outgunned, outmatched for sure. Um, so I guess well, now I have to go kind of negative here, which I don't like to do. But um, uh, in the past week, the All England Club, the um, governing body of tennis in England, the sanctioning body of the Wimbledon Championships, the probably the most prestigious tournament in tennis, uh, made the decision to outright ban all players of Russian and uh, Belarusian? Belarusian? Belarusian. Belarusian. 
and of Belarusian descent. And you think, well, I mean, how many, you know, the number two men's player in the world right now is Daniel Medvedev, who would be a betting favorite, I think, at Wimbledon. Number eight player, Andrei Rublev, who I mentioned in a rant months ago, when the, at the outset of the war, famously writes into a camera, said, stop the war, end the war. Um, Victoria Azarenka, two-time Grand Slam champion on the women's side, sixth-ranked player in the world, um, is Belarusian, and she is banned from participation here. Um, I don't get it, and I'm not alone. The ATP, the WTA, Martina Navratilova, countless others. Why? What they've, they've already... So if you were to go to like the ATP site or WTA site or even watch one of their matches like on Tennis Channel, whatever... There's no flag adorned to those players. You don't see the Russian flag. They don't fly the Russian flag or the Belarusian flag at these events. That's enough. The NHL playoffs start uh, tomorrow. Some of the greats in the game are Russian. Ovechkin, Panarin, down the line. They're not, and, and rightfully so, they're not banned from competition. Why are we banning the individual, even the individual in the case of Rublev, that has come out publicly decrying the war to the... It, not in his, you're not doing that in your own self-interest. Uh, if you know Vladimir Putin, why are we banning the individuals? You don't want to fly the flag. Don't fly the flag at Wimbledon. All the participating nations and countries, you fly the flag. Have a flag ban. Have a. They don't play the national anthems anyway. But that's enough to ban the individuals. Seems like a very short-sighted miscalculation by the All England Club. One that I hope that the USDA, when they host the U.S. Open this uh, late summer. I really hope they don't go in that direction. My guess is they banned it because they don't want protests. And they probably did a calculation where it is easier to just ban them from playing than it is to deal with a nationally televised protest at their event. Um, that would be my guess. You think people would be protesting the For, fact that they're playing, that they're allowed I think, to play? I think, I think that there would be like a pro-Ukrainian protest. I mean, we've had two months of... Of, of two or three months of tennis here where these guys are playing week in and week out yeah. in an international tour with very, with with none of that. I, I wonder... I mean, that's the only thing I could think of because it doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> it doesn't. It, it seems so performative and so misdirected. You know, nobody voted for the war like in Iraq. It didn't go to a referendum. You know, I mean, if someone was radically pro-Putin and was going to use this as a vehicle to, you know, kind of... Give give credence to uh, what's happening, you know, from the Russian perspective. All right, maybe, but that doesn't seem to be happening. And even then, you know, that's avoidable. Don't interview him or her. You know, just don't make, just don't do the interviews. Um, In fact, the opposite's happening. Right, the opposite's happening there. Right uh, again, this war. The the the, Rush, the Ukrainian people are suffering far worse than everyone else is. The Russian people aren't doing great either. Like the economy's kind of going to be in shambles because that always happens to Russia when when wars go badly, and people aren't buying their gas, and that makes it like that's their only industry. So there's going to be a lot of suffering in Russia. I don't see why picking on these rich people who probably don't even live there anymore no. would be the reason. There's no chance any of them still live in Russia. No, they, they live don't. in America. And if frankly, if Medvedev or Rublev were to win the men's title that Sunday morning. And they get up there in front of 20,000 people live and mil tens of millions watching around the world. And they made a pro and anti-war, pro-Ukraine statement. I think that would be one of, I think it'd be an historical moment. And I'm not sure that, I, I think that could very well happen it if would be they the, were allowed to participate. It would be the biggest Wimbledon moment since Arthur Ashe won. And they're, 
and it's and it's not going to happen. No. Um, well, the all the all England club can't got to wear white. Yeah, I gotta. got it's all whites. Yeah, yeah you can't anyway, um, skin tone included. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's for right. sure. And there's a certain level of you know censorship. And on that on that theme, after the break, we were going to talk about Elon Musk uh, and his purchase of Twitter, or his now I guess he's he's on the board of directors and he's got the controlling interest. However, it works. He's he's running Twitter now, and also some of his other fellow billionaire, the Billionaire Boys Club, Zuckerberg, Teal, down the line, and what it means. It's all next here on the Bill Bradley Collective. If you're dumb enough to buy a new car this weekend, you're a big enough schmuck to come to Big Bill Hell's Car. Bad deal. Cars that break down. Feed. If you think you're going to find a bargain at Big Bill, you can kiss my ass. It's our belief that you're such a stupid motherfucker. You'll fall for this bullshit. Guaranteed. If you find a better deal, shove it up your ugly ass. You heard us right. Shove it up your ugly ass. Bring your tray. Bring your tie. Bring your wife. We'll fuck her. That's right. We'll fuck your wife. Because at Big Bill Hell, you're fucked six ways from Sunday. Take a hike to Big Bill Hell. Home of challenge pissing. That's right. Right, challenge pissing. How does it work? If you can piss six feet in the air straight up and not get wet, you get no down payment. Don't wait. Don't delay. Don't fuck with us or we'll rip your nuts off. Only at Big Bill Hell. The only dealer that tells you to fuck off. Hurry up, asshole. This event is the minute after you write us a check. And it better not bounce so you're a dead motherfucker. Go to hell. Big Bill Hell's card. Baltimore's filthiest and exclusive home of the meanest sons of bitches in the state of Maryland. Guaranteed. So welcome back. So the in business news this week, and ironically, I know this because I saw it on Twitter, is Elon Musk has decided to spend $44 billion of his hard-inherited money uh, from his, you know, which, by the way, let's point out, I know he claims he's a self-made man. He was born a billionaire because his parents took advantage of apartheid. Um and Elon Musk has somehow managed to be worse than his parents. We're, this will not be a pro-Elon Musk broadcast for those of you who are Elon Muskovites. If you are, you probably aren't a fan of this show. <laughs> yeah. I don't but know. There's this weird, and, if you, and if you are, we don't want you to be a fan of this There's this weird show. interlocking group between Bernie Bros and Muscovites. And Peter Thiel people. And Peter Thiel, Peter Thiel people we'll get into later. That, it's, it's disaffected internet nerds. Yeah. The NBA guy. That worked for the Mavericks, the better Heralibus Vulgaris, who was on Bill Simmons' show last week, big Musk guy. And again, that's checks out this weird, inter- yeah, yeah, this weird internet nerd, yeah, who was also the first guy into Bitcoin that I ever heard. Like so into this cryptocurrency. Yeah. Follow him for the NBA, and then he starts talking about Bitcoin ten years ago. And yeah. like, what the fuck's this guy talking about? And he was right. He was, he was anyway. right. Yeah, he's got a lot of money. Uh, yeah, there's two groups of people: people who in, who control Bitcoin. And everyone else who went broke. So this is my Bitcoin thing. And then we'll get to Elon Musk. I'm going to the ATM. And the woman next to me is checking her Bitcoin thing. Like she's, there's a, you put in, you know, it's like an ATM, but it's for Bitcoin. And she's getting her a balance. And she's going on and on to me about how I need to be involved in this. This is where the future is. And she gets into a car with this giant dent on the side that was like held together with duct tape. I don't know. I try to get my financial advice from people who can afford to get their cars fixed. I'm not knocking her. I've been in positions in my life I couldn't afford to get my car fixed. But I wasn't giving financial advice to strangers at the same time. Yeah, Bitcoin people are weird. <laughs> so anyway, Zach, tell us a little bit about the uh, about what Elon did and what it's going to mean. So the first step to this was when Elon Musk uh, became the largest shareholder of 
Twitter on their board of directors. He bought a controlling share. Which is only like 9.3%. It's only 9.3%, which then led to him uh, saying, you know, he wants to buy it and now starting this process. It's about a four-month process before he's finally in charge of Twitter and the new Jack. Uh, Jack is currently the CEO. Basically, like, it's just a way for him to liquidate some of his Tesla earnings so that his investors don't freak out and they can say, look, I actually do have this money. It is earned and I can use it because everything he does is in the search of just propping up uh, his failing car company. And yeah, could you tell us how many years Tesla's made a profit? Uh, zero. Oh, that's shocking. Yes. Shocked. They've, they've never made a profit. You know, uh, by the way, I don't think Twitter makes a profit currently. Twitter loses about $8 billion a year. And after, <clears throat> excuse me, after the announcement, like Tesla's stock plummeted, twelve percent. Musk lost like a huge percentage, or I mean, Musk, relatively. M- Musk personally lost one hundred ninety-five million dollars. <laughs> uh, million or million? I thought it was higher than that. Oh, 195. Right. So yeah. he, he paid forty-four to lose one ninety-five, <laughs> but he is a financial genius, and we should accept that because you know he managed to get government contracts to pay for all his bullshit it, ideas. It, it also goes to show, and we're going to get into this with some of the other billionaires. We're going to talk about uh, these venture capitalists, these VCs that really provide no services. I mean, Elon Musk at least provides a good. Like, a car is a good. He's at least providing some sort of goods and services. Um, But it's like Uber, which loses billions of dollars a year, yet everyone says, well, you you just need to use it. And it's like, but it's losing billions of dollars. Why would I invest in this? Like, why would I want to be a part of this? It hasn't turned a profit in its existence. Like, at some point, Businesses need to turn a profit, except if you're a billionaire venture capitalist, and then whatever you do is a success no matter how much money it loses. Well, because people invest in it, and then basically we have an economy now built on pyramid schemes. and Much like Bitcoin. Yes, right. Much like, I mean, I I used to think this about Enron. Wait a second. I don't, like, I don't know much about money, and it's economics. I never took an economics class in my life. You know, you're way better at it than I am, Zach. Everyone's way better than I am. But my, my one macroeconomics class uh, <laughs> 18, 16 years ago is really coming in. But ultimately, when I can't figure out what you do and I can't figure out why you make money, those companies end up losing money because they don't do anything except collect money. And then people say, well, I'm going to stop giving you money, and then it's over. Like, I don't – I mean, yeah, I just don't get it. Well, especially like a, a business like Twitter – which really provides no value. It has a lower user rate than Snapchat, an app I'm sure you're hearing about for the first time today. And, and I don't, I don't think that's true now. Snapchat has died in the last like four months. They're still as of at, at, <laughs> it has. We were litigating this this morning, but actually. um, it has, but it still has a higher user rate than uh, Twitter. Twitter really is only used by like it's on un, it's under ten percent of the people. I, I think it's like two point five percent of the population is on Twitter. However, one hundred percent, and Dan Pfeiffer always mentions this. 100% of politicians and 100% of media people are on Twitter. Yes. I mean, I, I basically use Twitter to get news updates from journalists I follow. Whenever they have a new article come yeah. out, I go, oh, okay, they're a new article, I'll read it. That's how I follow the draft. I, I follow the draft on Twitter. Same idea, the idea of using Twitter as kind of like this aggregator, of like following the people that you want to follow and being led to their stories. And now, and now, and I think this is like the big question hanging over a lot of this is like, now that Musk is in control, how does that aggregation, how does... What's going to fundamentally change about Twitter? This, this is, exactly. Okay. 
they, they, I'm, oh, I got fired up quick you on that one. Yeah. That one triggered me a little bit. Oh no, just a question. Yeah. <laughs> just a question. <laughs> I didn't think I'd have such a such a Good. visceral reaction Please. to that. I want, I, it's this bullshit that you always hear about. Billionaires are innovators, and these venture capitalists are innovators. How are we going to innovate Twitter? Well, like it just is what it is. There's like all they're gonna do is is make it worse by monetizing it. They're gonna say like, oh, get the get you know the Twitter the Twitter Elite package, get the Twitter Basic package, and you know have you know be able to slide into the DMs of your favorite journalist. They have to engage with you. It is you. What are you gonna do here? Like the business is what it is. They already it it's a very simple product. Well, what he said he's gonna do, Leon. I mean, Elon Musk, Leon, Elon Musk Leon. is a, <laughs> Leon Musk, that was his, his less successful brother, yeah. <laughs> half brother. He also adopted, so <laughs> has an adopted brother, um, but no, the, the, what he said was that this was a free speech decision, that Twitter has policies that prevent, for example, Donald Trump being on Twitter. But he said it, as he always does, in the stupidest, least nuanced way possible. Because what he said was, Twitter should have no limits on free speech beyond what's allowed in the law. Which, by the, by but the by the way, Twitter is an international yeah. company. So whose law? Yeah, is it China's? Be- Russia's? South Africa's? Um, United States? What laws? Is he going to have a different Twitter uh, policy for every country in terms of how they how they can access content that doesn't seem like something that's going to happen what he will do is make the workers lives at twitter way worse because you know that's a given i was reading an article Brandon. I don't, I don't know if you saw this too where like a bunch of twitter workers are like leaving yes they, did you yeah where uh once once like he became the head shareholder they started leaving and now that he's moving ahead to purchase it they're like really leaving um, which means the people who work for Twitter now are going to be the Muscovites. Would that be the? I, I like the Musk uh, the Muskies. No, no, because Ed Muskie was a good Ed Muskie was a good senator, bad presidential candidate. So uh, Musk- Muscovites. Oh yeah, I like. I, I was thinking the title would be Elon and the Muscovites. It 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 reminds you of how how much these people remind you of uh, termites because <laughs> they just get in and destroy fucking everything. They are they are destroying the foundation of our country one nibble at a time. Um. Yeah, the people that work for Twitter are going to be just awful. And this argument about free speech, let, let's let's just touch on that for a second. Because what Twitter said is you cannot openly spread misinformation or hate or hate speech. Like Twitter's policies uh, are there to ban, you know, the anti-vaxxers from saying, you know, take silver cloxide or whatever the fuck new snake oil they take instead of a vaccine is which actually has harm on people like candace owens is out there tweeting to take this stuff you know it is people it is nazis uh openly spreading fucking hate and openly being like we need to kill all black people we need to kill all jews you know what that's not a free speech thing if you like if you say that you should not have a platform to be openly spreading hate one of the things that and it's jack i can't remember his last name i have no idea i just always called him jack oh Anyway, we'll look it up you know. on Twitter. Yeah, well, but, it's somebody, <laughs> somebody tweet that at us. But, but um, Twitter's algorithm to stop the spread of hate speech is significantly more robust than Facebook's because Facebook realized, oh, the real money 
is in these people. Because these people will just, you know, they'll click on every ad. It doesn't, we could send them the craziest shit in the world. They'll click on it. They'll buy it. You know, we're going to sell you suppositories, not the Texas uh, book suppository where we have Riazzo. Allegedly. Allegedly. Let's be clear. Suppositories <laughs> that you uh, rectalize and, um, you know, that, that make you smarter or something. And they'll buy those. And so Facebook has really pushed the most offensive aspects of their algorithm because Mark Zuckerberg's a fucking monster. Twitter has been more responsible and therefore got bought out by a monster significantly worse than Zuckerberg because Zuckerberg wants to act cool. Like Zuckerberg wants to get invited to the same parties Ivanka Trump used to get invited to. Yes. Like she wants to be, he still wants to be on the old Ivanka and Jared uh, guest list and not the new Ivanka and Jared guest list where they don't even live in New York anymore because no one invites them to their parties. Andrew, I want to get your perspective on this because you, you're somebody who uh, is a rarity, I guess, these days, uh, where you actually use Twitter more than you use Facebook. I know that because we're in a group message thread, and it's always very exciting whenever you uh, whenever you hop in <laughs> and say something, you know, once every seven months. Um, but on, like, the free speech aspect of it, on the just user aspect of it, you use Twitter more than Facebook. Do you see the problems on Twitter that like, you know, that we've heard about that we've talked about the problems on Facebook. Like, do you see the same kind of, you know, you don't want to call it dangerous cause that word's overused, mm -hmm. but the same kind of impactful misinformation, impactful spreading of hate speech. So I don't, actually, I'm on Twitter a lot. I don't actually tweet. I just, again, I use it as sort of like my news aggregator. Well, I don't, I don't get into like Twitter debates or whatever, but I'm on, I'm on the platform a lot. I'm scrolling a lot, hitting links. You can take any, just, just throw a dart at a series of tweets and get into the comments section. Oh, it's a, it's a pit. And these comments, what these people, whether they're, whether they're, what's it, uh, a, a, a bot or a bot, whatnot, yeah. you just see the most hateful, whether it's racist, misogynist, homophobic, people are getting off in these comment sections just the most abhorrent oh. shit you can imagine. Oh, check out Amina Kimes' With, comment section when she tweets. Th that is a perfect example. The again, just whether it's an misogynistic, anti-Asian, anti-woman, you know, it's just it's Twitter is Twitter's like a cesspool in in the comments, in like the subtweets. And I I don't think Musk now Musk is certainly not going to clean that up. If anything, I think that aspect of it's going to get <laughs> probably worse or more just kind of like lawless, so to speak. Um, I don't know. What, you th what do you think? I, I, that's it, on Facebook. I think when you use it, they when I mean, there are times on Facebook where I actually think shared. I'm just like, oh, that's objectively false. Yeah, like that's just the that's an objectively false statement, you know, um, or like a meme, and I'm just like, oh yeah, that's completely incorrect, or like, oh, that's a picture of a different event. And there's like that kind of misinformation, but that's not, that doesn't pose a threat to anybody. It's kind of harmless until you realize like your 50 year old aunt got radicalized and is now in a QAnon. You know, it kind of happens slower on Facebook than yes. I think it does on Twitter. Yep. Well, um, actually, I think it happens much faster because if you go, if you click on a QAnon article, Facebook will send you 8 million that's, QAnon that's articles. That's also very true. Whereas too. Twitter, you kind of control who you follow. If you what, what do you well, call it? You, um, I only do latest tweets. 
I don't do the general because I don't want to. I don't because then it's just it's just Facebook on a different format. But I think but I think one of the things I'm with the engagement is where you see a lot of the awfulness on Facebook is in the comment section where people just go at it. The difference is on Facebook they're not anonymous, and on Twitter they are. So I think the comment sections are the, the, the they're called comment sections on Twitter, right? That's the comments, yeah, yeah the, the threads, comments, yeah, the, thre- the threads, whatever, whatever yeah. the fuck they're called. I never read it. Um, literally, those never. they're anonymous, so the vitriol is way higher. Like people just feel comfortable being racist if they don't have to actually suffer real world consequences, versus like. The guy who owned Camp Dog, I don't know if you remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Camp Dog is a great place to eat if you're hungover because it will just clear your system out in about 20 minutes. But ba- he put on Facebook one day in a comment section like, oh, well, if you go to jail, you know, all the people you see are black. And everyone was just like, what the fuck? And like, and he paid like a price for that. Like, there are people that I know that are like refused to eat there now and that, that did eat there. But on Twitter, they pay no consequence because those people are hard to track down, they have multiple accounts, you know, and then that gets into the whole doxing thing of, like, on Twitter you see that way more than on Facebook of somebody getting quote-unquote doxed. I will say this, and I, this is, we'll get to the doxing here, but first, one thing I've noticed on Twitter in the last six months or so, I'll open somebody's page that, let's just say they're a, a golf betting tout, and I'll just look at their page, look at a few tweets. Next thing I know... I hit refresh on my feed and I'm getting all of these tweets. I'm seeing all of these tweets from golf betters and like golf touts. Yeah. And it's always like subject golf, subject betting, subject this. Somebody's got a, th- th- this algorithm. And again, this is kind of a new thing because is this, normally it was Twitter or Facebook. This is Twitter. Twitter, Twitter, this does is that Twitter. But do, are you on latest tweets or because on latest tweets, you only get people you follow. I am on latest tweets, but, oh, I, wow. get, I, but I get promoted tweets from oh, again. Right, if yeah, I, if so I look are. again, I, I'll look at, an independent wrestling promoter. Right. And the next thing I know, I'm just getting all these promoted tweets from every independent wrestler in the fucking country with any sort of following. I'm just seeing all their shit. And I have to go like like delete. Like I this don't want to he- I don't want to hear yeah. from this person. I don't want to hear from this like subject of golf. I don't need golf betting in my fucking Twitter sphere. And the the worst part about that when you it's click- become it, I guess my point is that it's become increasingly this is pre Musk, like kind of Facebookized in a way. A lot of promoted shit based on your sort of like browsing history or this is really dangerous. And the worst part is on Twitter when you say, I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to see these tweets anymore. They're like, oh, thank you. We'll do a better job uh, accommodating your preferences. And then you just get a different fucking guy. You're absolutely right. Like, you're just a different fucking guy. But the real problem here is I think this represents yet another step, yet another, where a billionaire has decided that they are going to control the media, that they are the arbiters of what is and is not acceptable, that they will be the ones who dis- to who provide information. Now, Twitter is a good platform to get news articles and to follow journalists and to get, you shouldn't get all your news from Twitter, but you should absolutely follow journalists that you yeah. like and read their articles but- because you trust them. But if you're getting your news from Twitter, you're basically getting your news from Facebook and it's both fucking horrifying. So like, it's another step and we've seen this uh, with with other billionaires where they decide that we are going to control the narrative because we, by virtue of being a billionaire, which is almost always by virtue of having inherited large sums of money, right? 
that I am now the final decider on what is and is not acceptable in polite society. Right. And, and Musk has not been shy about this. And the, I guess the ultra-wealthy have often controlled the news because they made their money I mean, in William, media. William Randolph Hearst. But, but William Randolph Hearst made his money yeah. in media. So, okay, that's at least, you know, you knew what you were getting into from the start. It, Musk, Musk wants to... Musk always wants to jump the hard work part and get to the collect the riches and be famous part. But the one, the, the billionaire that really got this ball rolling is Peter Thiel, um, who is, who sued Gawker. Mm-hmm. Bankrupt. Well, Gawker. no, wait a minute. Bankrupt. Well, no, he, he didn't, he, he didn't sue. No, Hogan he sued bankrolled Gawker. Hulk he bankrolled. Right, yeah, he bankrolled. Right. Yeah. He did not directly sue. He bankrolled it. And he has done this with other lawsuits for other, other, uh, groups where the object isn't to win. The object is to bankrupt the company because almost all media companies are worth much, 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 much less than Peter Thiel. And he didn't care about the Hulk Hogan sex tape. He didn't, he wouldn't know Hulk Hogan if he fell over. But I was about to make an inappropriate joke, but I yeah, shan't I because I, I, I've learned in my lifetime. And so he'd find Bubba the Love Sponge there too. <laughs> <laughs> but, Jimmy Hart. But um, but Theo mostly wanted to go after Gawker, uh, which became Deadspin. Well, Gawker was the parent. Gawker was the parent right, of Deadspin. Yeah. And mostly to Gawker because they, they wrote an article about being gay, him being gay, which he is gay. I mean, he's out, but they mentioned it. Um, and this so horrified people who are concerned about, about the integrity of, of the information we give each other. Because he made this new, he bankrupted this news company over one article he didn't like. He was, this created such a stir that Facebook put him on their board of directors. And everything you want to know about Mark Zuckerberg is that. Well, I think everything you want to know about the parasitic vulture capitalist mini economy that kind of exists in Silicon Valley, where it's all these venture capitalists just essentially giving each other money um, and investing in each other's companies. Um, Peter Thiel. You know, there there are some people that believe Gawker deserved what it got uh, for writing that article. But Gawker was really um, a successful independent news outlet, which is incredibly rare these days. I mean, Sheldon Adelson, uh, another billionaire from Las Vegas, owns multiple media outlets. He owns Chicago Tribune. Right. You know, he owns multiple, multiple media outlets. The, the, the media that we all consume on a daily basis... Uh, if you read the news, it's largely owned by billionaires or by hedge funds. And Gawker was an independent uh, news organization that did a lot of really good uh, journalism. They they broke stories on Condé Nast and um, did a lot of really good stuff. And they just got pounded by somebody who was a billionaire who is essentially – and this is what pisses me off is because you know – you know that these little pipsqueaks got the shit kicked out of them every fucking day, and they deserved it. And then they got older, and then they decided we're going to start kicking the shit out of everybody else. Yeah. Peter Thiel's parents would have sued anybody who kicked the uh, shit up. I dead Deadspin, which was like Gawker's sports sub subsite, was like a huge part of my life for like ten years. And if you want to think about a perfect sort of Deadspin's whole thing, it was like sports news without access, without bias. We're going to go at we're going to go after ESPN. We're going to go after the power brokers, the commissioners, they the went owners. After Barstool. They went after everybody. 
with like again because they were not beholden they were not a rights holder they were they weren't beholden to any brand or any individual and it's dead it still exists but it's a it's, it's owned a, it's owned by a hedge fund it's it's, it's a it's owned by a hedge fund who, who mockery who, of its former who great told self. them that they could not write about anything but sports and not take a social angle on it Th- those people do not listen to the Bill Bradley Collective but uh, I mean they had one of the great writers in our country Drew McGarry, Drew McGarry. Yeah. and they had him and. Uh, as entertaining as anybody is, and they just threw him away because they said, nope, you don't get to say things we don't like. The other thing, and just talking about Theo, in case we weren't convinced that, you know, he's bad, um, Theo has been the primary, and by primary I mean like 80% funder of the J.D. Vance uh, Senate Senate uh, campaign. Another fucking pipsqueak. J.D. Vance, who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, mm-hmm. uh, a book that has a reputation it does not remotely deserve. Um, well, it, it, he's so awful, Hollywood rewarded him with a movie. Right. And all of it was because, oh, you're going to tell us how these poor people live in a way that we can feel bad, but not bad enough to actually do anything about. And, and also, by the way, they're poor and it's their fault. Right. Right, and, and if only they could be like him and go to Yale. And, and right, <laughs> right, Yale, and then uh, he got his law degree from I forget where it was from. It was someplace like Yale. Uh, no, Yale Law, and he got his undergrad yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I think he got his degree from Yale Law. Okay, right. Oh, no, no, he got he went to Yale and then got his degree from Princeton, I believe. Yeah, or something like that. Regardless, yeah, he's he is he is an, uh, of the salt of the earth type in the way Josh Hawley is. Um, Before we move on from Thiel, I mean, just this past week in Times Square. Who was the New York Times reporter that sort of did the thing on the libs of TikTok account? Taylor? Is there yeah. Taylor, There's a big thing in Times Square, right. bankrolled by, um, by Thiel, saying uh, this uh, this reporter's name. I, uh, is it Taylor Lorenz? Taylor Lorenz. Uh, yeah. And it said, Taylor Lorenz doxed libs of TikTok. This big thing in the middle of Times Square. Mm-hmm. Like, number one, like, who in Times Square walking around is going to, like... They're just gonna be really confused looking at that. It's it's it's, but it's spending a, that money. It's like just it's absurd. It's a very online way to go about things because, well, because by, uh, by and large, people in America probably don't know what the word doxed means. Right. It's well, a very online term. Well, of course, the other thing is, it's not the event; it's the coverage of the event that the like no one that that ad is aimed at is in Times Square. They're just not like. They are still where they are. They're watching Greg Gutfeld. But they can pick it up on that Greg Gutfeld's going to show it. And and isn't this great? And actually, it won't even be isn't this great. It'll be liberal outrage over this. And then they they create the straw man, the liberals who are angry, and they get angry that the liberals are angry in a never-ending cycle of meaninglessness. But anyway. I was going to say, I don't know if this is a straw man, but Peter Thiel does believe in drinking the blood of younger people. Uh, that is something he has actually funded. Peter Peter Thiel, he believes that'll make him immortal. What it is going to be hard Regular to count Dracula. The, uh, Jeffrey Epstein may have re, may have retired, worst billionaire ever for life. That yeah, right. I think it's safe to say right. Trump may have. Well, Trump's probably not a billionaire. Trump is absolutely not. But if he did, he'd retire second. But Thiel might be breathing up his neck. Because he's bankrupting Vance, and Vance's big thing now is we need to attack corporations that push a woke agenda on us. Now, this guy who six years ago 
compared Trump to Hitler at a speech six years ago is now endorsed by Trump yep. because, of course, Trump likes nothing better than to see a former foe have to grovel at his feet. Like, that's the closest he's been to an erection since Melania. I mean, since, no, not Melania. That was long before Melania. So, uh, was a porn star. Mar- oh, uh, <laughs> God, why did I remember? Who's the porn star? Stormy Daniels? Stormy, Stormy Daniels. Daniels. God almighty. That's my <laughs> legacy. That I had that name on recall. Um, but anyway, but like, so now Thiel is paying a guy to go to the Senate and try to get these to be national laws. And he's not going to run out of money. So he could do this in every Republican district in the country. And that, I think by he, the way, if you want to give up hope for humanity, watch the Ohio debate. Oh, between Josh Mandel, another Trump conservative versus J.D. Vance, and, a soulless sack of bones. And, 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 then, and then other Trump conservatives. Right? It's, 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 it's all about getting, getting uh, the support of someone who doesn't live in your state and wouldn't live there if, they had, if there was nowhere else to live. But I want to ask you guys a question because we've talked about Thiel. Uh, you know, I brought up Adelson. But there is another billionaire who has basically taken over. Uh, if you want to buy anything in this country, you have to order it through uh, his network, uh, which is Jeff Bezos, who uh, has also bought the Washington Post. And you'll be surprised to know uh, when Amazon was getting unionized by labor hero Chris Smalls, uh, Je- there was not one pro-union article in the Washington Post. Uh, in fact, there were many anti-union articles in the Washington Post uh, about this organizing is I, I have two questions for you guys the first why well, I, I have three that we can wrap up on in the third one but uh, the first one is is the is Elon Musk buying Twitter comparable to Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post yes and no um I, I think on the surface yeah another billionaire controlling you know this, and, and again, Twi- the Washington Post is a news outlet. Twitter is I I I mean I use it as a news outlet. It's kind of how I read my news. Every paper, every newspaper in this country, with some every major most most every major newspaper in this country is owned by like a conglomerate. Whether it's whether it's News Corp, Tribune Company, uh, I mean Bezos now with the Washington Post. I mean it's just as dangerous. I mean, I think Musk in control of Twitter is dangerous, and I think Bezos in control of the Washington Post is dangerous, but I, it, it's not entirely the same. I, I think that, the difference is that social media being a new phenomenon has no institutional controls in place at all. Yeah. That, that in fact, that was the point to not really have any controls in place so that it could be a free exchange of ideas. But nothing's free. Everything has a value because there's advertisements that make this work. And um, and so you get people who are very willing to pay for hate speech. It's why 8chan and 4chan, you could buy, we could go buy 8chan right now if we wanted. It's worth nothing. It's worth nothing. It's because because it's, it's lunatics talking to other lunatics and there's nobody to get mad at. So they don't, it doesn't matter. Like, like these, there's no persuade, you're, your fifty-year-old aunt is not on it, Jim. I I, um, I think that's a good point because the Washington Post is a news outlet and a respected news outlet. Twitter uh, is a Twitter is a place for 
conservatives to try to own the libs right. at, at its core. And I, I would say that Bezos seems to have, no, I have not followed the, I have not, frankly, my Washington Post subscription lapsed and I didn't redo it. So I have not followed, uh, you know, online, the, didn't follow the coverage of, of Amazon. I would say that his treatment of Amazon workers, just like uh, Schultz, Howard Schultz's and other billionaires' treatment of Starbucks and workers. And Musk's treatment of. Uh, and Musk's treatment is absolutely, absolutely at its core an attack on free speech and freedom of action. Um, they pose the, they pose the, posit it the opposite way, that they're protecting free speech because the company gets to talk to the workers. But that's, you know, that is not a conversation. When the person who pays you talks to the person they pay, and the person they pay could be fired for how the conversation goes. That is not a conversation. That is an ultimatum. I've lost organizing campaigns that were well won until the captive audience meetings happened. And so, and Bezos and uh, Schultz and his ill and Musk are at their core. I mean, Bezos has forces people to use an app that does not allow them to use the word union or rights or restroom um, in the app because, and you can only talk to people through that app. That's the only way you can communicate with your work, fellow workers. And that is, you know, uh, you know, so I, I think in terms of, you know, our general theme that, that billionaires have decided what speech is allowable and the speech that's allowable is speech that benefits them. And they agree with um, Bezos is no better than than they are, though he has shown, probably because he had no choice, more restraint with the Washington Post than uh, Musk is talking about having uh, with Twitter, where he seems to want to just, you know, do whatever the hell he wants. Because that's that's what his life is to him. He just does whatever the hell he wants. He wants to go when to the moon. When you're a billionaire, you can the government will give him money to go to the moon. And so my second of three questions as we as we get to the end here um, is, is there anything people can actually do to kind of fight against this billionaire takeover of our media apparatus? Um, aside from, you know, there are a lot of Gawker writers formed uh, this new blog called Discourse Blog. Um, I'm a subscriber to it. I, I encourage all of our listeners to subscribe to it. It is doing uh, great journalism. It is funded entirely by subscription, so they are not entitled uh, or beholden to anyone. So they write very interesting articles uh, that make you think and that are thoughtful and that are critical of the power structures uh, in America that exist. But aside from doing things like that, is there really anything we can do, or is this just another step in the march towards our future dystopia? You can always leave the platform. You can always, you know, act with your wallet, act with your not giving your PayPal information and subscribing. Um, but listen, I, you know, corporate news, news, news is an, it, it's, it's unfortunately everything, most everything that we see is, is beholden and controlled and driven by corporations, conglomerates. Quickly, just this morning, I was having a conversation with one friend of the pod and Zach's other life partner besides Laura, Mike Schroeder, and we're talking about the Wall Street Journal. 
And he was making the point that like, the Wall Street Journal, as far as a news and data piece of, of uh, as a news source, is really good. It's when you get to the op-ed page yes, where it just becomes this right-wing uh, smorgasbord, um, a bonanza, where lots of just you know things that are outright wrong are published on a daily basis. And who is the Wall Street Journal controlled by? By, by News Corp. By the, by the Dow Jones, which is controlled by News Corp, Rupert Murdoch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and whatnot. The thing is, you're. It can be the paper, the, the Washington Post, Twitter, can be useful, but between the lines, you're always. It's always going to be controlled by yeah. the greater uh, corporate interest. And, and we did. We we never mentioned Rupert Murdoch, which was a. He's kind, of a, for, he's kind of a forerunner to all. Because, well, really. yeah, because he owns he owns the Wall Street Journal and Fox News. Didn't, he got didn't he get sued like six years ago for spying? Didn't he, didn't he, like, spy on journalists? New York Post, too, right? Yeah, New York Post, too. I, I believe that's true. I don't... Please don't sue us, Rupert. No, it's canon. Uh, <laughs> it's canon. That's a, that's a lock. That's a fact. Um, we are spreading misinformation. <laughs> um, Elon Musk... That's a great move. We'll end with this. Elon Musk, come and buy the Bill Bradley Collective. We'll be less than $4.4 billion, in fact. But I do have one more question for both of you. Are you going to delete Twitter? I have not deleted Facebook, which I even think is worse. And I have not deleted Facebook or Instagram for just the same stupid reasons other people do. There are people I never would see and never see other than that. Twitter doesn't have that component. Like Twitter, kids that graduated from high school that I taught that wanted to stay in touch with me are not part of, like, they're not, we don't follow each other on Twitter. I've never tweeted in my life. I've responded to tweets. I've never tweeted, tweeted in my life. I don't know how to do it. Um, plus, like, why would I do it? I've posted on Facebook. Here I look at me here. This is where I am. Um, I think Musk is a bridge too far. I think when he takes over control, he can just don't drop it. Yeah, I, Musk is my one of my five least favorite people on the planet. What about you, Andrew? We'll see. I mean, it was really hard for me to watch like the NFL draft the other night without being on Twitter and seeing what people that I care about thought about all of the picks the and second- how it unfolded. And where where else can I get that sort of live? It's this utility that is very kind of indispensable for me. But Musk might be a bridge too far. Let's see what it looks like and, three and six months from and, now. And, and I agree um, with you on that point. Like when the when the draft was happening, like when the Jets drafted Garrett Wilson, my first thought was to go to Twitter to see what Rich Simony and Connor Hughes had to say about it, and what the Jets press had to say about it, and what mm-hmm. Paul Caparoso had to say about it. Because I'm like, hey, is this, like, are we all on board with this pick? Like, exactly. or is this the future of our receiving core? Um, but I agree with you. that. You mean it, more than Mims? <laughs> I, lo- I love Dental Mims. He stepped out of bounds and, t- and cost us a touchdown. Uh, he's, which on are, his, he's on his way out. But I, I, I'm with you, Andrew. I think it is a, a, a we'll-see moment. I kind of, you know, on one hand, it's like the mindless scrolling of Twitter when I'm just, like, going to the bathroom has just become, like, a part of my day. Yeah, mine too. You know, where it's just here, like, here. Yeah. you know, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna find a news article that's interesting and I'm going to read it. Um, I've read, I, I, I mean, I read four articles for prepare for this show on Twitter. And, and to get back to you, Zach, the, the problem with leaving your, you know, just saying, all right, I'm going to leave the platform and that'll show them, is whatever platform you go to, they'll buy anyway. Yeah. Like, they're never running out of money because we don't tax them. So because they're not taxed, at a real level, they their wealth just grows and grows and grows, and there's nothing we could do about it. And so they're going to end up they they do own the world, and 
with that positive note, we'll see you next week on the Bill Bradley Collective. Thank you for joining us on the Bill Bradley Collective. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe on all podcast platforms and give us a like on Facebook as well. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week on the Bill Bradley Collective.